Yeah, Alan Connie are in the house, so I'm sure you guys will be around a little bit after if people want to grab you and talk to you. Did you get the did you bag a did you bag a big one this no? Probably Oh, Ben did? I would say, but at least it wasn't freezing cold. I thought about you a couple times this week. At least you weren't out with your teeth chattering and all of that. So uh, I bag mountains, I bags deer. So good to have you back. Hey, quick things before I jump in. Um, number one, I think I had said this last week, but uh, online I was accidentally left on like while we were doing worship, so the online people got to hear me singing. So I apologize and seek forgiveness for that. <laughs> Uh, Samuel Baker, one of our college students who, if Samuel's up here, a lot of you would recognize him. Brother Samuel is what we call him. Was in some publication by Emporia State, so that's really cool. And just want, yeah, can we like, yay, Samuel. Yeah, he's a love, Brother Samuel. Um, You know, we've been doing the New Testament. We've been going through the New Testament, preaching through it, following our reading. You guys, a lot of you have been doing this in triads and quads. It's been um, great, and we've had a number of you asking, like, hey, our group wants, we want to keep, mis- keep meeting and going through the Word, and though we're not going to be preaching through, like, the Old Testament or anything, we have put together an Old Testament reading plan, so if you want to continue with your group, you want to continue reading the Bible, we're going to send you to the Old Testament next, uh, next year, and it's not the whole Old Testament. Some of us sat down and picked out what we felt like were the key foundational books so that maybe over the course of two or three years, if you keep meeting, you can work your way through the whole Testament. Those are back there on like kind of cream-colored sheets if you want to grab one on the way out, and we can also send that out as a PDF to any groups that want it. Um, a couple more things about what's coming up. Number one, next week we're going to be in First John chapter 5 talking about prayer. It's probably the most common question I'm asked about prayer. If I talked to Al, it wouldn't surprise me if it's the thing he was and is most commonly asked. So we're going to be dealing with a pretty important topic next week. I'm not sure I have all the answers. It's a little bit of a paradox, but we're going to take the the word of God in 1 John 5 and deal with that. And then another thing, so this year, since we've been following, the preaching's been following the New Testament, every week is a totally different topic, right? I mean, totally different. Sometimes they're just radically different. Um, next year we get to go back to being a little bit normal. I'm looking forward to, to that opportunity. So we're going to be doing some series again, series stuff. And the first one we're going to do is something to me that is so foundational, has been so important in my life. We're going to talk about identity and where do you ground your identity and how do you get an identity in Christ? Because there is a lot of uh, um, stolen identity in our world these days. And I think among believers, a lot of us live under false identities. And that's a lot of the struggle that we have internally. And so we're going to hit identity, and I'm really excited to be able to talk about that. But today we're going to be, um, we're going to be kind of, I'm going to be referencing Second Peter and Jude a lot, um, and this week is going to be a little bit different, and I hope you don't mind. Um, I'll tell you why in a second. Here's the reason. As we read through Second Peter this week and got into First John, and as we get into Second John and into Jude this week, you're going to notice that a lot of what they're talking about is false teachers. It's a very common thread. Paul had warned the elders in the church of Ephesus about this. Um, In his talk to the elders, um, he said, savage wolves will come in among you and will not spare the flock. Even from your own number, men will arise and distort the truth in order to draw away disciples after them, so be on your guard. And Jesus had warned about this in Matthew 24, 4, and 5, where he said, Watch out that no one deceives you, for many will come in my name, claiming I am the Messiah, and they will deceive many. And we read, what, probably two or three weeks ago in 1 Peter 4, 1, 
that Paul said the Spirit clearly says that in the latter times, some will abandon the faith and follow deceiving spirits and things taught by demons. So we know that as we get closer and closer to his coming, there's going to be more and more false teachers um, arising. And so to me, what I'm going to do this morning, again, it's a little bit unique. Um, To me, it's another way of me trying to equip you. Um, And what I want to talk about is how do you really identify and know what a false teacher looks like, specifically cults and unhealthy churches. We'll get to that in more detail in a second. Um, Emporia, we've had our own cult here. The way, if you guys don't know, the, the, like the Christian school and all this stuff across from the hospital used to be a, a Presbyterian college that closed and then a, a cult group ended up buying that and they were here in the 70s. And when I was working with internationals, um, this was really important to me. Anytime a student became a believer or even if believers came from other places, Our whole purpose was to send them back as disciples who were prepared to get involved in a local church wherever they went. And part of that was is that they got in a healthy church when they went back. And so we would always talk to them and help give them ways to identify what does a cult look like or what's an unhealthy church look like. Because the last thing I wanted is we had done three years of work here and then they go to China and get involved. There's just dozens of cults in China. Get involved in one of those and be led astray. So we always would equip them with this. And as I knew Second Peter and Jude were coming, this was something I really wanted to, to share with you guys. Um, this is going to have a lot of information, but it's not meant to just be a lecture. That's not the point. It is to help equip us and prepare us so that we know what a culture and unhealthy group knows, looks like, so that if we have children or someday have them, that we can share with them what this looks like. So if we're involved in anybody's faith who's walking with Jesus, especially people that are new in Jesus, we can share these kinds of things. Um, so that we can be working to prevent people from getting sucked in by um, false teachers. And so to me, this is really, 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 really critical, what I'm doing this morning. And I want to tell you ahead of time, don't try to take a lot of notes, okay? Because you're not going to be able to. I'm actually going to put a sheet. We'll put something on the website this week that has all of this information that if you want it in like a physical form to share with somebody or whatever, if you can take any notes... It's probably only the diagram that we're gonna, I'm going to do at the beginning. That thing might be helpful, but other than that, just uh, let's go along for the ride, okay? So, and here's the diagram. So when speaking of churches, both healthy and unhealthy, talking about cult groups, we really need to think of two categories. We need to think of orthodoxy. Ortho means right. Dox, uh, I think, is voice, but belief, right? Belief, what, what you say is right. And orthopraxy, that you have right practice. Both of those things are extremely important. And a church can, it can be ortho in its teaching, it can, it can be following the Bible clearly and correctly, or it can, it can stray from what the Bible teaches. And a church can be healthy in its practice, or it can have some unhealthy practices in it. I think we all know that. Um, if it is a strong, healthy, oh, let me, let me quickly hit orthodoxy. Orthodoxy are the things that the church, that the Bible teaches, that the church through all of history, in all cultures, in all of the last 2,000 years, agree are the most important teachings, the core things. And let me just hit them quickly. The, the Bible, number one, that the Bible is God's word, that it's sent by him, it's inspired by him, it is his voice to us, still as applicable today as it ever has been. Um, I may be not following this order, but the God, there is one God who is the creator of everything, who is a father and loves us and desires relationship, but that one God exists in a community of three. There are three individuals in that who make up God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and if you're like, that sounds crazy, uh, in about a year and a half, I'm going to do a series, a whole series on the Trinity, and my first one, I'm going to explain why I think that actually makes sense and is very logical, but you have to wait for that, so... Uh, if you graduate from ESU, this may tough. Sorry, uh, 
Okay, I got lost now. Jesus, that Jesus is part of that divine community, that he is the creator, that he came to give his life to save us from our sin, that salvation is only through him. The way to a relationship is through his sacrifice for our sin, and that Jesus will return one day, that he will come back. That, that is orthodoxy. That's the key things that have always been believed. And so a healthy church will, have, will be loyal and faithful to the Bible and also will have healthy practice. Um, a cult, I mean, an unhealthy church, unhealthy churches, which we'll get to at the end, are places that, that teach orth, their, their teaching is orthodox, but their practice is where the problem is, and that'll become clear in a minute. Um, when you're dealing with liberal churches, you're dealing with churches that deny orthodoxy. They don't teach those, and I'm going to come back to that in just a minute. Um, tend to have healthy practice, but they just, they've, they've strayed from the Bible. But I would say more and more, a lot of the liberal churches aren't even doing healthy practice anymore. They've, they're not doing very well with that. And then there's finally, there's the cult groups, um, the groups that, that are neither orthodox nor do good at orthopraxy. <clears throat> so I want to talk a little bit about cult groups. There's two marks of cult groups. They lack orthodoxy and they lack orthopraxy. Um, specifically with orthodoxy, there's four particular areas that they, um, that they do not well in, where they, they go away from the traditional teaching of the Bible. Um, regarding the Bible, they do two of one, one of two things with it. They either are adding things to the Bible, like Mormonism, where Joseph Smith, an angel, gave him, here's a lot of additional books that I've kept aside for quite a long time that you need, or they'll make changes to the existing Bible. That's what the Jehovah's Witness did. They... Uh, he had actually no knowledge of Greek, but he just said these things were mistranslated, and he actually changed the wording of the Bible, so their belief is based upon those things. Um, another thing, another area where they go wrong, oops, I'm, we're going down to this, is salvation, that usually they deny that salvation, we are saved from our sin through Jesus. They tend to view Jesus as generally a good teacher, a lower level God or something, and we just follow his example, and by following his example and being good, that we're saved through our good works. We know scripture says I'm saved only by my faith in him. And they also struggle with God and Trinity and with Jesus. Um, they stray from a biblical understanding of God and of the nature of Jesus. These last two to me are so interesting because part of the problem with cults is the Bible has some paradoxes in it, some things that if you think about it, they just don't make a lot of sense. Logically, right, initially. I think if you dig into it, they start making sense. But the idea that there's one God who exists in three that seems totally contradictory. And a healthy church, you learn to live inside of that tension to be able to hold on to those two things. But cult groups always end up denying one side or the other. And always with, uh, with God, they deny, they, they deny the community side, the three. And they just want to have a unitary, solitary God. And if you do that, then you obviously don't believe that Jesus is divine. And that's where they struggle with him. The scripture teaches that Jesus is fully God, 100% God who came to be with us. It also teaches that he is fully human. Totally took on um, our humanness, our body, everything. And so he's 100% God and 100% human. And it's hard to think of something that's 100% of two different things. That's a bit of a paradox. And the cults struggle with that. And so they almost always deny his divinity and just hang on to his humanity in some form. Um, What's really interesting is when we were reading through 2 Peter and 1 John, they were dealing, the group they were struggling with, the false teachers, were called Gnostics. What I find interesting is the Gnostics were the exact opposite of modern cults because they denied Jesus' humanity. Um, they had been influenced by Greek thought and in Greek Platonic thought, 
Uh, anything spiritual is good. Anything physical and material is evil. And so therefore, a true God really can't come into a physical material world. So they really deny the incarnation. So the Gnostics actually taught that if you, the people who saw Jesus walking around on earth, it was just like a phantasm. or It was an illusion. He really wasn't there in bodily form at all. They were just seeing like not even a ghost, just something that wasn't real. He somehow did a magic trick. I don't, I'm not sure how that worked. But that's actually what they taught. It was called asceticism. That's, that's not that important. But that's why in 1 John and in 2 John, you read these two things. I hope these will make sense if you know that. In 1 John 4, 2 to 3, it says, Every spirit that acknowledges that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. Because that's what they were battling. And that's why in 2 John 7, he talks about many deceivers who do not acknowledge Jesus Christ as coming in the flesh. So that was the false teaching they were dealing with in the New Testament. I could say a little bit more what they were dealing with with some cool pictures, but I'm going to skip all that, okay? And I just want to get back to the cults. So cults, two marks. They lack orthodoxy and they lack healthy practice. And so what I want to do now is I want to talk about that lack of healthy practice. And I want to talk about specifically nine characteristics that are true of cults. Not all of these are true of every cult. Not every cult has all of them, but they're very common. Some are a grouping of them. Um, but they're the ones that really stand out. So number one is the misuse of the Bible. They are very good at building their whole belief system. They'll take like one little part of the Bible. So they're really good at just taking a part, a verse or a little a phrase or, or a paragraph. or not, not even paragraphs. They'll take a really small thing and they'll build a whole doctrine on it. And that's the thing they just go back to over and over again. They're not good at like, they don't teach the whole scripture. They focus on those things. And part of the way they really misuse the Bible is they will frequently, they will, go, they will use very obscure texts. I mean, we just read this week. Peter said, sometimes when I read Paul, I'm like, what's he talking about, right? Because there are some things, I mean, you've had that experience this year. There's some obscure texts, but they will take those obscure texts and build a doctrine on it. And in, in, in the Bible, in, in proper interpretation, what's clear is where we build, is where we stand. The unclear things, we just let those sit on the side, okay? And the other thing they do is they frequently will take, they build their key doctrines. They'll take a, a verse or a phrase out of poetic literature, out of the Old Testament, or out of prophetic or apocalyptic literature, end times literature. They'll take a verse out of that. They'll build a whole doctrine on that thing when there's no substantiating verses in epistles or in Jesus anywhere else about that, and they'll create a whole doctrine out of that. And poetry is important. The prophetic literature is important, but one of the principles of Bible interpretation is I don't build a whole doctrine solely on a verse, a one verse out of poetry or one verse out of poetic. If, if, I'm, if there's a doctrine, it will, it'll be in Paul or John. It'll be in the epistles that it'll be repeated. Does that make sense? But they violate that. So they misuse the Bible quite a lot. The Jehovah's Witness, one of their key doctrines that they have is the belief that when you die, like, you don't go to be with God. They get that out of the book of Ecclesiastes. That's their primary go-to text. That's poetic literature, and it's just not the best place to build a whole doctrine out of. The, that's the, uh, yeah, the Jehovah's Witness. They also, the Jehovah's Witness also teach that only 144,000 people are going to be saved. They get that out of the book of Revelation, which revelation is important, but again, you don't just build a whole doctrine off of one verse. And I feel bad for the 40 million Jehovah's Witnesses because of those 40 million, I don't, most of them are not even going to be saved, so I'm not sure how that thing even works, to be honest. Um, but they misuse the Bible. A second thing, this one is very common, is they tend to, they're very exclusive. They tend to be very exclusive. Um, they teach that their group is really the one true branch of Christianity, 
Frequently they'll teach that true Christianity has been lost for thousands of years since the beginning of the church and they're the one, that their leader is the person who's restoring the church to what God intended and that their group is the only true group. This was a hallmark of the Gnostics referenced in 2 Peter and Jude. If, you, if, if we talk more about them, they consider themselves to be spiritual elites, that they were higher and better than everybody else and they set them apart from everybody else and this is so common with these groups. Um, when we get to unhealthy churches in a minute, I'm going to give you a specific example of this. So let me say something about here at 12th. Number one, here at 12th, we will teach the whole Bible. We're not just going to pick and choose little things of what we want to do. That's why this New Testament thing's been good for me. Is like I've just had I've had to do some Jesus and some Acts and some Epistles, and I'm going to have to do Revelation. Can you imagine that? Um, because we're willing to look at the whole Word of God, and we're going to use solid biblical principles of interpreting. We're not going to mess around or play with you. Regarding this exclusive thing, this is something Al used to say all the time that I valued, and I totally believe that this church is not the only kingdom of God place in Emporia, Kansas, okay? There are many healthy churches in Emporia, Kansas who love Jesus, who are advancing the gospel. And so we're not going to be exclusive like these groups tend to be. The third characteristic is their leader they usually are built upon an authoritarian leader a very a singular individual or personality um, and frequently that person claims to have special revelation for God from God or they have a special relationship with God nobody else has um, they tend to have titles that they will take many even claiming to be the Messiah um, one of the guys who read who did the advent up here is Jiwon from Korea Korea has like 40 Jesuses who are living there right now. They have more Jesuses per capita than any other country in the world, okay? Because a, a lot of people over there are claiming that. Uh, there's even a cold group over there where the, the, the husband who was Jesus died, and then the wife, uh, well, she's like, well, now I'm the, I'm the one, and so they're, they're, it's called the wife of Jesus group. Like, can you imagine that? So she's, she's now the wife of Jesus that they follow. Um, wow. <laughs> There's a lot of arrogance in these leaders. 2 Peter 2.10 and 18 says this, they are bold and arrogant. They mouth empty and boastful words. They tend to demand total loyalty to them, to the system that they've created, and they exercise very high control. We're gonna talk about this in a minute. High control on people's beliefs and especially on their practice. And usually these leaders have no system of accountability built in. This was happening in the first century. 2 Peter 2.10 says they despise authority and they do anything they want. So they didn't have authority, they didn't want authority structures. And as such, they're very self-serving. Jude 12 and 16 says they're shepherds who only feed themselves. And in 2 Peter 2, 3, he says they flatter others for their own advantage so they can exploit them. This is a hallmark of cult groups. Um, and as we're gonna see in a minute, many times these leaders, though they have high control on everybody else's behavior, they take a lot of personal freedom with the people in their group. We'll come back to that in a minute. And they also generally have full control of the group's money. Second Peter 2, 14 and 15 says they are experts in greed and they love the wages of wickedness. Jude 11, they rush for profit and in Jude, for Second Peter 2, 3, it says they will exploit people for their greed. That's why at 12th Avenue, it's been this way the whole time, but I never touch any of the money that comes here. I don't know who gives, I don't know who gives what. Uh, I don't even care, right? It, it shouldn't even matter, but in cults frequently, the leader's tied to the money. So I just want you to know, this, this church, 12th Avenue, we are not about any individual or any person. This body is about Jesus Christ, the Lord of the universe, right? Did I hear a woo? Yeah, we can do woos. Woos are good. That's who we're about. 
We're not about Garen. We're not about Jordan. We're not about Jason. We're not about the worship team. We're not about any individual. We're about the kingdom of God and advancing his kingdom. We want to lift Jesus high. We want to seek his fame. And not only that, I just want to tell you, I could never build a group on my personality. <laughs> Trust me, okay? Do you, do you remember a few weeks ago, I just preached about um, how that what God wants us is not living for the spectacular, but just living, following him in the ordinary things of our life? So afterwards, I was back in the corner with a group of college students, and we were talking, and we were talking about how ordinary I was. And some of the guys were like, hey, we're going to start calling you OG, Ordinary Garen. So just trust me, if I wanted to make this place a cult group, it wouldn't even happen, okay? Couldn't even happen. Number four, they're very controlling. They use a lot of fear, guilt, intimidation, shame to control people. They'll use public confessions and humiliation. Um, they usually put very strict sanctions against anybody who violates their behavioral things, which we'll get to in a minute, how strict they can be. Um, they also really work hard at cutting off people in their group from outsiders. They want to cut them off from family, from friends, because a lot of times those people can see these unhealthy practices when they can't, and they're trying to speak in their life and like get them out of it, and, and so what they do is they try to cut them off from people they know and just get them in the group so that they can kind of be blind to what's going on. And if a person breaks off from a cult group, they always treat them very harshly and harass them. So I just want you to know at 12th, we're, we're never going to exhibit a spirit of control. Only God is in control, right? The longer I live, Al, the longer you pastor a church, the more you realize like, how little control you have, right? I mean, you, I mean any, any of us who are growing in the faith. And we will never use guilt, fear, or shame on anybody here. We take the example of Paul who in 2 Corinthians 5.14 says, the love of Christ compels me. That's always going to be our motivation here is that we love Jesus and want to follow him. Okay, fifth, extreme legalism or license. Um, they tend to be one of the two, um, usually on the legalistic side. They're, they'll have a lot of strict rules concerning behavior, um, very legalistic. That There's a lot of pressure to follow that. Rules about dress and adornment and entertainment and just a lot of things related to behavior, even sleep, just a lot of things that they will really control. This was going on in the first century. Paul, writing about false, a false group to Timothy, says, those people forbid people to marry, and they order them to abstain from certain foods, which God created to be received with thanksgiving by those who believe and who know the truth. For everything God created is good, and nothing's to be rejected if it's received with thanksgiving. So Timothy was facing that kind of a group, very legalistic. Interestingly, though they will be in a, they'll have a legalistic group, most of the cult leaders take great license for themselves. They may follow those rules, but they take license with themselves for people sexually in the group. This has been a hallmark of a lot of cults, and it was true in the first century. In 2 Peter 2, 14 and 18, here's what he wrote about the false teachers. He says, they seduce the unstable and they entice people by appealing to the lustful desires of the flesh. So what, was going, what goes on here was going on clear back then. I find that so helpful. But some groups get into total license to where they're like, basically you're free to do anything. And they will engage in behavior that a lot of people in the society will like be frowned upon or like, whoa, what's going on there? And a lot of times it entails just total sexual freedom. <coughs> this was true of, Peter, of the false teachers in Peter and in Paul's day and what they, um, Peter and Jude, who they wrote about. Here's what Jude 4 says. He calls them ungodly people who pervert the grace of God into a license for immorality. In 2 Peter 2.1, he says they engage in depraved conduct. And in 2 Peter 2.10, they follow the desires of the flesh. 
2 Peter 2.12 says they are creatures of instinct who follow their natural instincts, Jude 19. In 2 Peter 2.19, they promise people freedom as they carouse and revel in their pleasures, 2 Peter 2.13. So this has been going on for a long time, this thing with license. And there are some cult groups, they're not common, who actually have this interesting combination of very legalistic expectations and behavior, but very loose morally when it comes to sexual things. Sometimes those things are even put together. And I want, you, I want to tell you that at 12th, we will continue to promote and live and talk about living godly, holy lives that are worthy of the calling that Jesus has called us to. And we will never be controlling and we will never be legalistic in forcing people to apply lots of little rules. So that's what we're always about here at 12th. Number six, they tend to be paranoid. I don't want to say a lot about this. Um... They tend to see, like hunker down, they see the whole society is against them, the government's against them, education's against them, religion's against them. And so they can be very aggressive in denouncing um, the society that's around them. Again, Jude 19 talks about the ways they seek to divide people. That's a common theme in Jude and in Second Peter, actually. So I just want to tell you at 12th about this. We're not going to live, we're not going to be paranoid people, Okay. I am, my primary concern is not what's going on in the culture. Um, if people don't like us, attack us, that's fine because I serve a Savior who is the Lord of the universe, right? And I have accepted his good news and my whole focus is on advancing his kingdom. That's my focus and that's going to be the focus at 12th Avenue. We're not going to worry too much about what people outside may say about us or whatever. We're just going to serve him and we're going to strive to advance the kingdom. We're not going to live paranoid lives. We're going to follow Jesus who in Matthew 16 said this. He said that the gates of hell will not be able to stand up against his church as we advance his kingdom. And so we just march forward doing the things that we're called to do. And then seventh, they're overly subjective and experiential. They tend to put a lot of emphasis upon, um, again, subjective and experiential things. In a lot of their teaching, they put down the rational thinking and reason and logic. They really elevate experiential things. And there's a reason for that, because they don't want people questioning the things that they teach. They don't want people um, thinking too much. Um, And by doing that, by putting that emphasis, they're keeping people from like questioning the leader and they're also creating an environment that's highly experiential where they can really separate themselves from outsiders. Like, hey, we have this big spiritual, well, none of you have had that, so we're the true ones, you're not. There's like lots of reasons for it. But in the first century, the church in Colossae, they struggled with this. They had, a false, they had false teachers there. We're told in Colossians 2.18 who worshiped angels. And again, the Book of Mormon came supposedly from an angel. Um, in Colossians 2.18, we're also told they claim to have special visions. In Jude 8, says false teachers rely a lot on dreams. Highly experiential. And I want to tell you, as a church, we will never lift up experience above all else of what it means to be human because God created us as whole human beings. And so we will live a balanced life of learning to love God with all of our heart, with all of our soul, with all of our strength, and with all of our mind. We're going to love God with the totality of who we are because that's what he calls us to. Secrecy. A lot of cult groups have two faces. They have an outward face that's not real and an inward face. And frequently they'll say things in public to win converts that when you get into the group, you find out that what they're saying isn't totally true, that they, their true beliefs, once you get in or committed, that's when you find out what their true beliefs are. That's very common. And this was true in the first century. In 2 Peter 2.13, he says, they delight in deceiving you 
And in verse 1 of that chapter, he says they do this by secretly introducing destructive heresies. So secrecy has always been a hallmark of false teachers. And I want to tell you, cults frequently will hijack important biblical words. And they'll use them in, in reaching people, using the words that, you know, that are kind of Christian words. And then once you get in the group, you find out that what they really believe about that is different, that they put a different meaning. A great example of this is the Mormon church talks about Jesus being the son of God. But they don't mean it the way traditionally, the way he even talks about it, right? To them, I mean, if I told you what they believe, that God at one time was a man. So the God of this world was one time a man, and he, on a world, and there was a God over that world. And he attained godhood, and when he died, he, he became a God of this earth. And then he's had spiritual children from all of his wives from that earth. And then all of his children are populated here. And two of his children that he had by his spiritual wives were Jesus and Satan, who were brothers, so when they talk about Jesus being the son of God, they literally mean like he's the son of one of his spiritual wives from his previous life. Does that make sense? Totally different than what scripture talks about. If that doesn't make sense, that's okay. Because um, it, it kind of doesn't. Um, but anyways, the, and there's even a lot of secret rituals. You find this in Mormonism. And I just want to tell you at 12, we have no secret beliefs. We have no secret rituals. Everything we teach, we talk about is fully upfront. Um, you can know everything about us. And then the ninth one is this. They have extreme end times orientation. They have a fascination with the future and the end of the world. Many of their beliefs revolve around the end of the world. They frequently believe their leader is bringing in the end of the world or their group is the sign of the end of the world. Um, it's frankly no surprise that the three major cults in America, Christian Science, Mormonism, Jehovah's Witness, all started in the late 1800s when there was a huge end of the world fervor, a lot of people thought Jesus was coming at the end of the 1800s. I mean, if you think you hear that a lot today, it's nothing compared to what was going on at the end of the 1800s, and a lot of cult groups rose up inside of that end times um, fervor that was going on. So I just wanna tell you here at 12, we long for Jesus to come eagerly. We wait for him. But within all of that, my primary focus is just living my daily life in the ordinary, loving and serving him and seeking to advance his kingdom. Okay, I'd love to tell you about the way internationalism poor you. I did some research on it, but so much of what the way was like fit so many of these characteristics. They, he taught, he actually said God spoke to him. He, went, he grew up in a pretty healthy church. He said God spoke to him in college, um, that he would be the only person to know the true way. He ended up saying that uh, the only parts of the Bible we can use is the book of Acts and Paul's letters to the churches. He denied the Trinity and believed in just a Unitarian God. He denied that Jesus was divine, that he was just created specially by God and Mary to be an example for us, to see the way to live. And he used a lot of experiential things. He actually, when he started his cult, he went and visited a Pentecostal uh, revivalist who was famous for his techniques on teaching people how to speak in tongues. And he learned his techniques and he ended up applying it in his group. And their group taught that the only true people who knew the way were only people who spoke in tongues. There was just a lot going on with him. Um, eventually, he had to step aside. And then the guy who followed him had to step aside because they were accused of authoritarianism and taking sexual license with people in the group. Surprise, surprise, right? Because that's, uh, that's what cold groups do. That's, there's the way. That's a postcard from a long time ago. The way international, they were, you know, across from the hospital... There's some buildings over there, the Christian schools over there. That's, that's what we're the way operated for a long time. Okay, I just want to talk for a minute about, wrap this up. I want to talk about unhealthy church because I actually think this is probably the most important thing for you. 
to be honest. Sometimes they're called aberrant churches. Here's the problem with unhealthy churches is they're orthodox in their teaching, but they have practices that are not healthy. And this is where I think most Christians can get sucked in. If you move to another town, that you might get sucked into an unhealthy church. And here's what I'm going to tell you about them is though they are orthodox in their belief, their practices frequently there are some of the same practices you find in cult groups, especially those six. They tend to be very exclusive, um, very legalistic, very controlling, very subjective and experiential. Um, I'm going to say one group, if you don't mind. It's the group that probably has had the most impact globally, um, and it's what started in Boston in the Church of Christ there called the Boston Church of Christ. They now are called the International Church of Christ. And anywhere they plan a church, so there's one in Kansas City, they call it the Kansas City International Church of, or the Kansas City Church of Christ. And by saying the Kansas City, here's what they're saying, that they're the only true church in Kansas City. So they're the Kansas City Church. And if they planted one in Emporia, they would be the Emporia Church of Christ because they're the only true church. That's everywhere they go, that's their modus operandi. So I just want you to know that group is not healthy in a lot of their practices. Um, so just be careful. Let me hit liberal churches quickly. Liberal churches deny just orthodoxy. They think the Bible is just a, a nice book written by a bunch of like old white men or something, and a lot of it doesn't apply anymore. They deny the divinity of Jesus. They deny many times God to them is kind of pantheistic. And I, I, I don't know how to say this carefully, but I, want to t- I just got to tell you, many, not all, but many of the mainline Protestant churches in the U.S. struggle with liberalism. Many of them. I just talked to somebody this week, had a conversation, and he didn't know that. And it really made me stop and think, oh my gosh, I need to quit assuming that people know that, because I know that, but maybe a lot of other people who follow Jesus don't. Um, There are even some Baptist groups I could point to who have taken on a lot of liberalism and deny orthodoxy. So we just need to be aware of this. Once attending an international event at a downtown mainline church, The minister ended the prayer for the meal by praying this. We pray, God, in your name, in all the ways it's been known, as Jesus, as Muhammad, as Buddha, as Krishna. And, I mean, he showed that he did not believe uh, his beliefs about God, and he did not believe that Jesus is um, the one true revelation of God coming in human flesh. So that's probably more common than you realize. And then, yeah, so they deny those things. And then healthy uh, we're never perfect, right, in practice, but try to stay away from those things that Mark holds. But what's a healthy church look like? Um, two years ago, almost February 16th of 2020, I actually preached on this just before COVID hit. Who knew, right? <laughs> wow. If you want to listen online, um, it was a sermon based on Acts 2 and Acts 4. I just had the nine marks from there of a healthy church. It's grounded in worship. It's dedicated to the word of God, the whole word of God. It's established in prayer. People who are being liberated from strongholds. They foster deep koinonia, deep sense of family, engaged in loving service. They abound in sacrificial giving. They are on mission with God. They are definitely on mission for God. They live as sent people. And it is a place, not legalistic, but a place full of joy and grace. That's what a healthy church looks like. Okay, that's a lot. Uh, this week I was driving home and they, were, they had the fire hydrants open. And I've been really working hard at not doing fire hydrant sermons. This one's kind of been that way. But I want to get really practical. I want to get practical and then really practical. And the practical is this. I think this is really serious and important. 
I think there's a reason 2 Peter and 1 John and Jude are in the scripture because this whole thing of false teaching is true and it's real. And, and through that, God's trying to show us some of the traits of what those things look like. So to me, it would be committing clergy malpractice if I never ever talked about this at some point with people because I think it's really important. So that's why I brought it. But let me get even more and more practical than that. Something that you can start today and it's this. Get in the word of God daily. Get in the word of God daily. That's why we've had this New Testament emphasis. Um, I just challenge you to be in his word. Just the other day we read this in 1 Peter. The word of the Lord... Uh, actually, Al, every time this happened, this came up as the verse of the day. I keep referencing you, I'm sorry. The verse of the day, like three weeks ago, and my family, my kids are texting. That's what Al always said whenever he'd read scripture. Anyways, the grass dies and the flowers fall, but the word of the Lord will live forever. And this is the word that is preached to you. And then two verses later in chapter two, verse two, he says this, as newborn babies, as they desire and want milk, you should want the pure, simple teaching because by it you can grow up. We need to grow up, and that means that we're in the word of God, okay? To me, that's the most practical thing you can take from today is that we do that. In the book of Hebrews, we just read this a few weeks ago where he said to them, you should be teachers by now, but you still need somebody else to teach you again the very first lessons of God's message. You still need the teaching that's like milk. You're not ready for solid food. Anyone who lives on milk is still a baby and knows nothing about right teaching. Solid food is for those who are grown up. They practiced in order to know the difference between good and evil. I love the NIV. By constant use, they learn to discern good from evil. Okay? If you leave Emporia, I can't follow you and make sure you get in a good, healthy church. I can't keep you from a cult group. Okay? You need to be, all of us, we need to be in the Word of God. We need to know the Word of God. It needs to shape how we think so that when we see an unhealthy place, we can tell that, right? That's what you read about counterfeit bills, that they don't teach People, who, the guys who are trained to recognize them, they don't give them counterfeit bills. They have them study and learn the true thing, and then when they see the false thing, they know it. And so we need to be people, all of us, we need to be people of the word, daily in the word, taking it in, right? That's what God, that's, that to me is the big challenge that all of us need to do. Um, in the words of Richard Foster, we're in the word so much that we can smell gospel, Right? You smell gospel. You smell when something's gospel. And you can smell when it's not gospel. So um, that's my challenge. Let me finish with this. In our time in the Word this week, there was a really powerful insight. And here's what Floyd McClung wrote. Each of us is expected to be spiritually self-sustaining. We cannot rely on pastors, on Garen, on Jordan, on Jason, whoever, or Christian leaders to keep our faith propped up. But some Christians live from Sunday to Sunday. They start their week ready for action, but by Saturday they're drained of their enthusiasm. They can barely drag themselves to church the next day for another boost. Once Bible study is a regular part of our lives, we will begin to reap the rewards of a more stable, mature relationship with the Lord. We will also have the personal confidence to go to the Bible and find our own answers to life's questions. God wants us to reach a place of maturity where we can spiritually feed ourselves and be able to stand firm on our own two feet. Can I hear an amen to that? Amen. Let us be people who are in the word of God, okay? All right, I wanna end with Acts. My challenge is Acts 17, 11, where we are told that, the, the, that the, the people of Berea were more noble than those in Thessalonica because they eagerly listened to what Paul had to say. They were eager to hear the word. But they also took what Paul said, and every day they compared it with Scripture to make sure what he was teaching was true. 
So let us be Bereans. Let us be people who are eager to know the word of the Lord. And we have the ability, whatever anybody says, whatever I say, that you can take that and compare it with scripture and ask the question, is what Garen's speaking gospel? Is that really what God says? That's the kind of people we need to be. So would you stand? I want to pray for us. Thanks, thanks for sitting here with that, like that big gush. I know that was really a lot, but to me this is so significant. So, Father, thank you for, for this body that the word of God has always been central. I pray, Lord, as long as I'm here, it's going to stay that way. I pray that it will always be that way. Lord, so many of us have been in the New Testament this year, and I've loved that. Help us to be people of your word who are regularly in it who are committed to that just daily learning and that over time we will more and more grow in that ability to discern between good and evil. Lord, so that each of us can stand on our own two feet and that each of us has the ability to tell when there's a false teaching that's coming down the pike. So make us that kind of people, Lord. And we pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Twelfth, as always, you're sent. There's a world that needs Jesus, so let's be sent people.